This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. This is a league of A's and B's. It's green and red and gold and black and blue. This is a league with two official languages and many unofficial languages. It's East versus West, wheat versus iron, love versus hate. This is a league where superstars are extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. It's a league of ice, of fog, of mud and wind. And for one Sunday in November, it's the nation's glue. This is a league as diverse as a country, a league of Jacksons, Kwongs, Johnsons, Moscas, O'Shea's, and Haji Razulis. This is his league, his league, her league, their league, and their league. It's my league, and it's your league. This is our league. Welcome to From the 55-Yard Line with Greg James and Scott Adamson. And we are here today with Paul Woods, noted a former journalist with the Canadian Press and editor at the Toronto Star and the author of a great book called Bouncing Back about the 1983 Argos and a new book coming out entitled Year of the Rocket. Paul, welcome. Thank you very much, Greg. Nice to be here with you guys. Hi, Paul. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. I know uh, it's Saturday and it is very hot out in South Carolina and Chicago and Toronto, so it's probably a, probably the best time we could have picked to to do this interview inside of air conditioning and with all of us. So, but uh, um, yeah, so let's get rolling. And um, first question I have is in terms of the Toronto Argonauts. Now, Toronto is very much is the biggest city in Canada. Yep. And if you could just kind of lay out for us just kind of a, a quick thumbnail history of the Argos for the uneducated Americans down here when it comes to Canadian football. Pretty much why the Argos, you know, who are the Argos and really why are they so important professional football? Sure. Well, yeah, it's it's, it's an really interesting story they, they they're coming up on 150 years old i mean they they were uh, they they began play in 1873 uh the united states at that point has wasn't quite 100 years old canada at that point was six years old you know canada founded in 1867 so six years later the Argonauts started playing football and it sprung out of a, a much bigger sport back in the 1860s and 70s, rowing. Uh, the rowing was a big, a big endeavor. And uh, there was a thing called the Argonaut Rowing Club in Toronto. Uh, and what they did, guys that were in the rowing club decided they wanted to start playing and the thing called rugby football uh, as of just as another way of, you know, getting exercise and having fun and stuff. And so the Argonauts football club was formed as part of the rowing club. Uh, and then of course it, you know, it'd been in those days, you know, there's pretty small schedules. There were, there was a, even though they've been around since 1873, so you can, you can argue that next year 
150th year. Um, they didn't play every single year. There's a few years in the late 1800s where there, there were no games played under the name Toronto Argonauts, but for the most part, they've been playing ever since 1873. Uh, of course, fans down there may not know that we're, we have our, our huge rivals are the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Uh, Hamilton is about a depending on traffic, it's 45 minutes to an hour outside of Toronto, uh, smaller city nearby. Uh, and Tiger Cats fans hate Argo fans and hate the Argos. Argo fans sort of don't care about the Tiger Cats too much, but, but uh, the, the Tiger Cats try to claim that they're older because we're playing, there was a team called the Hamilton Tigers that was playing in 1869. So four years before the Argonauts, but the Tigers merged with the Wildcats in 1950. So the Ti Hamilton Tiger Cats, as we know them, have only been around since 1950. But football was played in Hamilton four years before it was played in Toronto. So the Argos played starting in 1873. Uh, when what mutated and evolved into Canadian football got going in the eight, late 1800s and in the early part of the, the, the 20th century, um, the Argos, uh, you know, contested the Grey Cup very early on. The Grey Cup's been awarded since 1909. Uh, and mm -hmm. so the Argos were, were not the first winner, but they were among the early winners. And they've won more Grey Cups than any other franchise. They won 17. Um they, be, they were under the Argonauts Rowing Club banner up until, I believe it was 1958, 57 or 58. Uh, it, it was sold to private interests. Um, a, a consortium, business consortium led by a guy who was a, a big wig in Toronto back then, a guy named John Bassett Sr. John, some, of, some of your viewers will have heard of John Bassett Jr. He was involved with the USFL, um, with the Tampa Bay uh Buccaneer, Tampa Bay. Uh, he, was, he was with no. the Bandits in the Tampa USFL. Bay Bandits. That's right. Yeah. But he also Buccaneers owned the uh, the Birmingham Bull. Bulls. That's right. That's so right. He did. Yes, the, well. That's absolutely right. In fact, yeah, and arguably, just to just to digress for a second, right? The Birmingham Bulls were arguably the reason that uh, uh, hockey players started playing professional hockey before the age of twenty. They weren't allowed in the NHL before the age of twenty. And John Bassett Jr. signed a bunch of kids junior hockey to play for his Bulls. They were called, they called them the baby bulls. And that led to a change in the rules so that you could now draft guys when they were 18 years old and bring them up and so on. But that's a whole side side story. Uh, so Bassett Sr. bought the Argos, basically led a consortium and then eventually got majority control of the Argonauts in the late 50s. He owned the team until um, I believe it was 74. Uh, when they were bought by a guy named Bill Hodgson, who was a hotel owner. Uh, four years later, the team was sold to Carling O'Keefe, which at the time was Canada's third largest brewing company. Uh, Carling O'Keefe owned them for 10 years. Then they went for years to a guy named Harry Ornest, a character named Harry Ornest, uh, <laughs> who features a little bit. He's got a chapter in my upcoming book. He's an interesting guy. He owned the Argos for 89 and 90. They moved into the Sky Dome in 1989. They had played most of their life. They had played in a, in, a, in a stadium called Varsity Stadium, which was part of the University of Toronto. Uh, in the downtown core of Toronto. In 58, they moved into Exhibition Stadium on the grounds of Canadian National Exhibition. They were there for 30 years. Then they moved into Skydome in 89. Uh, Skydome was built, uh, Skydome being the first retractable roof stadium, uh, I think in the world, uh, was built because 
there was a Grey Cup game played in Toronto in 1982 uh, that just pissed rain. It was an unbelievable downpour, uh, and half of Exhibition Stadium had no 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 roof on it. The the one side, the south stands, were uncovered, and the people over there were just flooded. Uh, and that led the politicians to say we need a dome stadium. Uh, of course, the Blue Jays had come along in 77 and joined, and they were also playing an exhibition stadium, which got which got bastardized to allow baseball in there. It turned the stadium into kind of a crappy, crappy environment for football and baseball. Uh, but having the Blue Jays there and the Argos and, the, and that rainy Grey Cup led to the building of Sky Dome. So that happens in 89. They were there for uh, about 27 years, I guess. And then in 2016, they moved into BMO field uh, where they are now which is pretty close to where old exhibition stadium was BMO field is a fantastic place to watch football it's outdoors it's real grass uh they don't even put ads on the field because it's shared with the with the tfc soccer team uh fantastic viewing experience great sight lines in the interim between harry ornest and now they've had a number of owners um harry sold it to the most famous owners in the history of the team which was john candy wayne gretzky and bruce mcnall bought the team in 91. They signed Rocket Ismail from Notre Dame, who was going to be the number one pick in the NFL draft, gave him more money than the football player in any league had ever been paid. Uh, they owned the team for three years. That's the subject of my book. And we can talk about that at some point. Uh, and then after the, the ownership has changed hands four or five times since then. Uh, what's interesting, and maybe to wrap up my long-winded, you wanted me to give you the, <laughs> the quick version. I'm giving you the long-winded version. but No, that's okay. It, it's great. To, so, so to wrap this up, they, they've gone from being a very prominent place in Toronto and in Canadian sports. I mean, if you go back to the late 60s, early 70s, when the Argos were arguably at their peak in, in popularity, uh, they were the, they were as they were up there. They were probably bigger than the Toronto Maple Leafs are. And of course, Canada is a hockey country uh but in toronto the argos were as big as the leafs back then the leo cahill ran the team they had a lot of renegades on the team back then they almost won the gray cup in 71 didn't um and and then they they were they would sell out exhibition exhibition stadium they it was thirty-three thousand seats and they were sold out for three or four years in a row and then it expanded to 54,000 seats when the Blue Jays came and well, they didn't quite sell out, but they were getting, they averaged 47,000 fans a game back in the late seventies. And then it's been a slow and steady slide ever since. Uh, sadly for the hardcore fans like me, um, we've seen the team have some fantastic success since 1982. Um, but we've also seen their, their place in the marketplace has just continually gone down. They're now number four in the market here at best behind the Leafs, the Blue Jays. Actually, they're, they're arguably number five, and they may be, they may be behind the, the soccer team, TFC, although they have way better TV ratings than soccer does. But TFC outdraws them in, in, this, in the building. Uh, obviously, you've got the Leafs, the Blue Jays, the Raptors. Raptors are huge. Then you've got TFC and the Argos kind of in that lower tier. Um, but Toronto's also become an NFL city. Um, you know, there, there were years of games being blacked out, local home games being blacked out, and a lot of fans at the same time Canada got cable before anybody else. Toronto, Southern Ontario got cable sooner than anybody else in North America, basically. And so we were getting NFL games beamed into here, and Argo games were being played at the same time as we were blacked out. And so people would start to watch Whoa. NFL games. Um, so we've seen this steady decline of the Argos in the marketplace um, to the point now where they, they're, I mean, they averaged, I think, I don't know, 12 or 14,000 fans in the last time we played in 2019. 
Um, the ratings are, are good. The CFL draws great ratings and they draw great ratings in the Toronto market. Argo games draw well. Um, there was an old joke that, you know, the Argos are like, are like porn. Everybody watches and nobody admits to it. <laughs> you, watch, you watch it quietly in the privacy of your own home. Right. But uh, uh, so they're, they're struggling. And uh, they're, that's one of the reasons why I believe that the, the owners of the Argonauts, which is MLSE, which also owns the, the Leafs and the, and the Raptors and TFC, I think they're pushing hard for a merger with the XFL because they see the CFL with its nine teams. Well, every other league has gone to 30 plus teams. They don't see it. They don't see growth potential here. They don't see a chance to build the value of the enterprise. And I think they see that as being possible with, with an XFL merger. We don't have to talk about the XFL or we can, whatever you'd like, but, but that's where they are. They're, they're, they're in a, in a rough spot in the market right now. Got really diehard fans but there aren't enough of us coming to games there's maybe you know 10 or 12,000 real hardcore Argo fans who are there no matter what love the double blue love the boatman love all that stuff but in the in the in the greater Toronto area which is as you said it's the biggest city in Canada and maybe the third biggest city in North America when you look at the suburbs they're an afterthought a lot of people don't know what the Argos are they would never think of going to a game they don't even know they exist so there this you go that's amazing okay. to me just just considering the history of it, though, yeah, to, to have it drop off like it has, it's almost like the way you're describing it, that fans have sort of aged out of, of the arc or something. It's like maybe yeah, that, that's, you know, it's sort of right to a certain extent, Scott. I mean, there's a, there's a million factors for what happened. And, you know, I've often said that I, 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 hope, I hope the Argos never go out of business. Obviously, I, I really fervently want that. I love the team and I want them to be around for as long as I exist. But I never did go to business. There's a hell of a book to be written about how they went from way up here to down here. And there's a million reasons. I mean, the Blue Jays is one of them. The NFL thing I talked about is one of them. The Raptors is one of them. Um, there's the fact that, you know, when, when, you, when, they, when we talk about the Blue Jays, the Blue Jays arrived in 77. And suddenly you, the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox come into town. And then next week, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders are coming to play the Argos. It just doesn't, you know, Toronto longs to be a world-class city. Torontonians, they don't identify with Canada the way, the way they should. They, they sort of have this, this Southern, Southern viewpoint and they, they see themselves as in the, in the league of the New Yorks and the Los Angeleses of the world. And so the Yankees is a cooler sounding thing than the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Uh, you know, there's, there, there's, there's so many factors. And one thing is they went 31 years without winning the Grey Cup. From 52 to 83, they never won. And in a 19 league, it's pretty hard not to win any of them in 31 years. And so there was this huge demand to win, like the, 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 the pent-up demand for it. And when it finally happened in 83... It was right around the time the Blue Jays were getting good and competitive. And it's like, okay, finally, we won. Now we can move on to other stuff. We can start going to baseball games instead. Uh, and then, of course, they didn't market themselves. They effectively marketed themselves terribly back then. They did not perceive the Blue Jays as a competitive threat. Uh, the Blue Jays were an unbelievable competitive threat. They were marketing the young families and kids and cheap tickets and the fun afternoon at the ballpark. And, and, and the Argos thought that you just had to say, basically say tickets are on sale and, and people buy, buy tickets or put on a winning team and people will show up. It doesn't work that way in this market, as it turned out. It would for hockey. The Leafs can sell out no matter what, how, no matter how terrible they are. But in, in, in the case of, of the Argos and football, they got good and their attendance went down. And this is how that pattern has been repeated. I mean, they, they, their 
kind of went down in 84 after winning the Grey Cup in 83. It went down in 92 after winning the Grey Cup in 91. Uh, when they had Doug Flutie here in 96 and 97, the greatest CFL team ever probably, or certainly one of the top three CFL teams of all time, two years in a row, they went 17 and three and won the championship. They got 17,000 fans a game in a 54,000 seat stadium. So this market has, has, has turned its back on football. I, when they moved into BMO, like a lot of other people, I believe that was going to be a real salvation, getting back to outdoor football on grass in a great venue. Um, and, but I, but I, I said, it's going to take three to five years of holding the brand back after 30 to 35 years of neglect and abuse by bad ownership groups. Not all of them, but some of them were pretty bad. Um, but after doing it for, for now four years, it's, it's not a three to five year proposition. It's maybe a 10 year proposition. And I don't know that MLSE has the patience to do this for 10 years. That's what I think they're pushing for, for merger with the XFL. They haven't said that. That's just, right. that's just right. a conjecture. And it's what I believe though. Um, in terms of just like marketing, are that, how are they marketed up there? I mean, to me, marketing starts with just even coverage on local news. Are, 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 is the local news talking about the Argos or are they pretty much just an afterthought even in the news newscast? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, been, it's been a decline over the years. I mean, you know, in, in the old days, like in the early 80s, uh, when I moved to Toronto in 1980, you know, the, the Argo, there was an Argo story on the local newscast every, every night at 6 o'clock and 11 o'clock not every night, but most, very often, right? Um, right. And of course, the, 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 there were three newspapers in Toronto back in the 80s, and they all had Argo beat reporters, and they all had columnists who covered the Argos regularly, went to read regularly to Argo games, sometimes went on the road with the team. Uh, but over time, you know, the coverage has dissipated. I mean, the, the local TV news doesn't really have reporters anymore. Some of the, there was a half hour uh, sports program every night at 1130 before like sports center came along and all those kinds of national adventures. There was one in Ontario for global TV and they, they ran a lot of sports coverage, but they only had two full-time reporters. So given day one of them might be at an Argo practice and one of them might be doing something about the Leafs or the Blue Jays or horse racing or whatever. Um, but you could still count on getting some Argo coverage two or three times a week, but that that show's been off the air for years local like some of the local stations don't really cover sports anymore uh the local tv the local newspapers only one there's now four papers in town but only one of them has anybody on the argo beat uh the toronto sun actually does cover cover sports pretty aggressively um the, the other ones have have left it to the wires mostly and they focus their coverage on the leafs raptors and blue jays um and they've even the toronto sun which is which for many years was the best best sports section probably America, it's been shrunk. It's now down to 12 pages a day. It used to be 24 to 36 pages every day. Now it's 12. So they don't, they don't often squeeze, sometimes they don't squeeze an Argo story. And even if there's one to tell, um, so it's a challenge. Right. And so it sounds to me like this has just been a gradual decline since let's start with the eighties since they won that championship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, their high water mark for attendance was probably, was, I believe 70, 78, I think. So 77 to 79, their attendance was, was, was in the high 40 thousands. Uh, then it started to shrink a little bit. It came, it came, it blipped back up in 82 when the team finally got good after a decade of being terrible, they got good and they got entertaining. Uh, so the, so, so there were 
So a couple of games with 50,000 plus at the stadium that year. Uh, then the next year they won the Grey Cup and they still had great attendance by today's standards, but it started going down. And, it, and it, like I said, they won the Grey Cup in 83. The attendance dropped the following year. And it's been basically a, this kind of a hockey stick ever since. You know, the game the odd blip up 91 when McNall Gretzky and Candy came in and they signed the rocket and they had what I think was the greatest year in team history, not necessarily the greatest Argo team, but the greatest year in the, in the history of the franchise attendance went up and they had 50,000 fans at the, at the playoff game that led to them, led to them playing in the gray cup the following week. But tennis went down the next year. They, 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 they raised ticket prices. They stopped marketing. They did a bunch of stupid things. And so it's been a whole, and some years the owners were terrible. They've had a few owners that were very poor that didn't spend a dime on marketing or did it really badly. Um, so they've struggled. I mean, right. they just, you know, they, I don't think an Argonaut franchise has made a profit probably since, I don't know, 79, maybe. See, wow. it's, it's just mind boggling to me, especially the way the world works now with social media that marketing is not job one. You know, if that's not, that should be the one thing that you have. But you know, but you know, Scott, the, tr the trouble is they actually, the, the new ownership, the MLSC and, and their predecessors, they were sort of, they were owned by two thirds of MLSC up until two years ago. And then the other third came on board. So they've really had the same ownership for the last four to five years and, and all that time in the new stadium. And they've done some really good things. They, they, they tried to tailgate parties which of course are huge in the states but have never been a tradition in canada we've got tighter liquor laws and things like that but they they tried that and they they tried it really cool tv commercials the argos have a fantastic presence on social media they're probably the best the best social media team in the canadian football league um and it's not like they haven't spent money things they've 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 they've, they've tweaked ticket pricing and they've tried a bunch of different things and it just seems like whatever they try, it's struggling to, they're struggling to get traction in, in this market. Part of it is the market itself. It's a very, it's a huge city and it's, it, I mean, it's so huge that it's hard to get around, right? Like it's like from, I can get to a game because I can hop on a commuter train and be dropped off right at the door of the stadium. But if I had to drive to a game, it would be a, it's a nightmare. Traffic is, traffic's as bad as LA or worse. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and, and, you know, the location where they are is the only one that you can get to from every direction, either by car or by public transit. So they, they need to be where they are. A lot of people often say, if they just, the suburbs, everything would be solved. No, it wouldn't because they're, the suburbs is not one thing. The suburbs is 10 different things. And like there, there's a, there are suburbs of Toronto that are way farther from me than the Argos are right now. No way I would ever drive to, to Oshawa to a game. And I couldn't take the train. It would make, well, I think if I want to spend two and a half hours. Um, so, 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 you know, they, they, they've got challenges like that. And it's multicultural. Toronto's Canada is a very multicultural country, thankfully. I'm glad of that. And Toronto is an incredibly multicultural city. But for people that have come here from other lands, whether it's first or later generations, gridiron football is not a big thing overseas. Um, and so, you know, you, you follow soccer. Basketball's got a glowing global presence. And if you really want to fit into the into into Canada and into Toronto, you got to follow hockey, right? And so football, and then of course the NFL is this, this global behemoth that's right next door. We get a ton of games broadcast in, in Canada every week, more than you probably get in almost any city in the United States. Uh, and so you know you add that all up, and it's like everything you try, none of it seems to be working. Have they tried? And I don't recall 
hearing this, but they try what they tried in Edmonton, which seemed to work at least on camera, was uh, cheap beer. Oh yeah, oh yeah. They 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 when they did the tailgate thing for uh, in the first couple seasons, I I, forget, I think you could get a beer at the, you, you, you. Of course, it's not an American tailgate tradition. You, it right. was you wasn't bring you. I think you actually. I think there was once one part of it where you actually could drive your own vehicle, and I think you could bring i think you could bring your own beer but i'm not sure you may you may have had to buy their beer but it was cheap and then even when they sort of bail out of the tailgating thing although tailgating does happen in a very small way kind of illegal and on its own and nobody's interfering with them and that's good i'd like it to i'd like that to grow kind of organically but they did say they did say these things were like you can go walk into the stadium an hour and a half or two hours before the game and you can get really cheap beer you can get a beer for three bucks or four bucks which i mean it's it's more expensive than buying it at a beer store but it's right. but it's it's way cheaper than buying it at any restaurant right and i've noticed yeah and i've noticed just in the social media and looking at all the teams and trying to how they promote i've you know the one thing like you said is toronto does have really the best in terms of social media now i think the elks are going to the, oh, yeah. the new the rebranded team is going to be kind of neck and neck, but Toronto has always had a very good social media presence, even when they've been losing enough not to take themselves too seriously. And oh, absolutely, they 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 they, they, they have a they have a lot of fun on there, and they poke fun at themselves as well as everybody else, right? Yeah, yeah. But with okay, so Pinball Clemens came back, and what has his been a what has his effect been on? maybe turning this thing around. He seems to be the point man to turn this thing around, at least the, the face that's out front for the team. And um, yeah. he is a legend. I mean, that's the, if you could explain even for people down here in the States who pinball Clemens is, yeah. because pinball, I know, yeah. I know a lot of people down here, 99% of football fans down here wouldn't know who pinball Clemens is. Yeah. He's the most, he's the, he's the greatest Argonaut of all time. Maybe the most well he's the most legendary argonaut of all time and arguably the most legendary canadian football player of all time he's not canadian he's american he's from florida uh he came up and he came up in 1989 a little guy five foot five uh, running back uh set the league on fire in his in, in his second year set a record for the most all-purpose yards 3300 all-purpose yards. He was, you know he was he was catching the ball he was running out of the backfield he was returning punts returning kickoffs uh, won the most outstanding player award in 1990, despite being the smallest guy in the league. Um, and he played for the Argos for 12 years. And he broke he broke that that all purpose yardage record later when he played with Doug Flutie. He went for like 3,800 yards one year. Um, and then and he's always know, been an Argonaut. If I always been an Argonaut, yeah, yeah. He he actually he did play. He actually played eight games in the NFL with the Kansas City Chiefs. He was drafted by Kansas City in '87. Played eight games as a kick returner. Uh, got cut by the Chiefs, had a tryout with the Tampa Bay Bucks, where, of course, he's from Dunedin, so that's nearby. And uh, they told him, You're, we're going with somebody younger. The guy was 23 years old, which is a bit ridiculous. So, and he got, uh, he, he actually was, he, his rights belonged to the Calgary Stampeders. Uh, and they ran into, because uh, the, the, the league, the CFL has this thing where you can, you, Amer teams can place players on a negotiation list. If nobody else has got the player on their list, they can place this player on their list and then they have exclusive to negotiate with them and offer them a contract for Canadian football. Calgary had offered, had put him on their list. They offered him a contract. It was going to come up to camp in 89. And uh, the Stampeders ran into an injury problem at quarterback and they had to suddenly sign another quarterback. And they, so they had to drop somebody off the roster. They dropped pinball. Well, he was, wasn't named pinball. It was Mike 
Ray Clemens at the time. And he went to William and Mary uh, University and uh, Ralph Sazio, who was the Argos president at the time was also an alumnus of William and Mary. And he knew a little bit about Michael Clemens. And so he grabbed him, he snapped him off Calgary's negotiation list and offered him a contract said, come on up on the next flight. So he got up and he blew everybody away, but bounced off tacklers. Uh, the coach at the time, Bob Abilovich, said the guy bounces around it like a pinball out there. And that became his nickname. And it's stuck ever since. Uh, so he played for 12 years. And then in 2000 was arguably one of the worst seasons the Argos were ever having. They had an absolutely atrocious coach and general manager that year and under a new owner and uh eight games into the season they fired the coach and suddenly made pinball the head coach he was an active player at the time uh he actually he ended up playing i think one or two games while he was the head coach there was this thing game called pinball's last run where it was this is going to be the last time he ever suits up for the argument uh, but he was also the head coach at the time. And then he coached the team for the next few years, won the Grey Cup with, as a coach. He had three Grey Cup rings as a player, won the Grey Cup as a head coach, uh, the first black head coach to win the Grey Cup in Canadian football. Um, and then he moved up into the front office into sort of like like president and vice president, various roles that were that kind of left him, I think, I hate to say it, in kind of a bit of a figurehead. Like he wasn't really actively involved in the organization. He's got a lot of other things on the go. He's an incredible motivational speaker. The most, if you ever get to hear him speak, you will not believe it. You will just, he will blow your mind how, how inspiring he is. And if you ever meet the man, you will believe after two seconds that he's known you all his life. He's, he's, he makes friends with everybody. Uh, and he means it. Like it's, there's no, this is no act. This is pinball. Um, but they sort of, they sort of pushed him off to the side and then like he became sort of like a figurehead president or vice president, but he wasn't really doing too much from what I could see. Um, and then a couple of years ago, Bill Manning, who's the president of the Argos and Toronto FC, uh, realized like I got this incredible asset sitting around in this organization. We're not taking full advantage of him. And he made him general manager. Uh, and it's like, as it, I think as a general manager, he's doing an amazing job because he's recruited a whole pile of amazing players for this team. We're hoping we can get on the field this year. I'm dying to see this Argonauts team we, with the talent we've got. And a lot of those guys, because pinball is the most persuasive man on earth. Um, but, you know, and he's, he's, he is a, he's for sure. If you were to go around Toronto People that don't know anything about the Argos, a lot of them know Pinball Clemens. They've often said he could run for mayor, he could run for prime minister. Um, but even that isn't enough on its own to sell this team. They've got to, they've got to find ways to get people into the building. They've got to expose them to a, the product. The product's got to be exciting. The product's got to be entertaining. People have got to leave and have a lot of fun and say, I'm going back. Ticket pricing's got to be right. Um so hopefully, you know, if he, if he gets a chance to build the roster the way it looks like he's building it, we can become successful on the field. Uh, and then whether or not we merge with the XFL or whether Dallas ends up staying with the nine-team CFL, hopefully MLSE stays with it to the point where they're willing to sort of do the years of, of work and, and grassroots building that will that will bring this back. I mean, you can make you can break even or make money in this league if you get 20, 22,000 fans a game. So they're not that it's not that hard to do in theory. This market, it's proven to be pretty hard. Did you get a chance to talk to Pinball for your book? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he was, Chris, he, he was a big part of the 91 team and he was incredibly insightful. And, uh, uh, you know, he's a, he's a big part of that story. He, 90, 90 was his, 90 was his, was his, his most outstanding player year. So the year before, and in fact, it's, it's funny that, you know, 91 is the, the team 
everybody remembers because of Rocket and Candy and Gretzky and McNall and the unbelievable story of the Grey Cup that year. Um, the most courageous performance by any any player in Canadian football history with a quarterback, Matt Dunnigan, playing with a, with a broken collarbone and leading the team to victory uh, on the coldest Grey Cup of all time. You add it all up. It's an unbelievable story. The year before, before, though, when pinball was most outstanding player in the league, the Argos had the best offense the league's ever seen. That, that 1990 Argonaut offense was a juggernaut. And they put up 70 points in a game, 68 points, 59 points. They, they, they won games with their fifth string quarterback. They were so friggin' good that year. And then the next year they had Rocket Ismail. I was like, who's going to stop them? Well, they ended up, they, they won more games. They didn't, they didn't accumulate quite as many points they still had an amazing offense pinball was hurt for a good part of the 91 season but was still a big part of it uh and you know he was he was actually in the in the 91 gray cup he played a very important role that people maybe not realize he was he was basically uh, a very important decoy he had, he was playing with an unbelievably painful injury a turf toe injury that in fact kept it was sore all through the 92 season he was his his foot was killing him for more than a year but he played that 91 gray cup game and because he's pinball calgary had to put their best defensive back on him all day long and so he just basically took daryl hall out of the play for the whole game and the argos won the gray cup without needing many touches from pinball that day so yeah i did talk to him and he was a his, his usual unbelievable insights and and articulate and fun to talk to he's he's got some good stories in the book for sure and um in terms of just with now did you speak to him before he took over before he became gm or after just before actually okay. it was uh, yeah he i was i was astounded about a month later when they suddenly announced pinball's becoming the gm i'm sure he was in discussions at that stage, right he obviously didn't let on to me right but uh, did he get did did he give you any i mean did he give you any thoughts in terms of what he thought uh, what he thought the team needed to do to improve its standing yeah we did we, we, we didn't really talk about that stuff greg i was really focused on on what was oh, happening okay. back in gotcha. 91 to 93 yeah. right so it's okay. I, 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 pinball he's he's an incredibly busy man and incredibly hard to 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 get in fact you know the, the day i interviewed him we we had to like delay the interview by five hours because he just got tied up with something and so i said like i got an hour i'm, I'm i got to use this time very effectively so we talked about all the stories that he could tell me about 91 92 93 uh, we haven't sat down and ever had that discussion about what the team can do to sort of improve in the marketplace, but I'm sure he's had those discussions with Bill Manning and others and, and having pinball as the, as the focal point in the front man is certainly can't hurt you. You can't, you can't not love pinball Clemens. This is bouncing around a little bit back to your, to your first book, but sure. Two things that, that I really like to get your take on uh, Condridge Holloway is, you know, he prepped in Alabama. So I knew he was yep. before he went to Tennessee yep. And then also the the Mouse Davis offense, you know, just kind of, you know, reimagining things when he got sure. to Canada. I just sort of like to get your takes on both of those because those are, you know, the the man and the offense are both very interesting to me. Well, thanks, Scott. I mean, yeah, I mean, Condridge Holloway, is, for, for many Argo fans, he's still their favorite player. Like, you know, you ask a lot of people, who's your favorite Argo or who's your favorite quarterback? Sure, some will say Doug Flutie and some will say Ricky Ray and some will say Pinball Clemens, but a lot of people say Condridge Holloway. And he, you know, Condridge, I, I loved, I loved that guy. He, he came, so I, I got to Toronto in 80 and, and uh, they, they had a, not what looked like incoming team but they didn't have a good quarterback and then the head coach Willie Wood the great Green Bay Packer legend was was the head coach and he he knew we needed a quarterback and he got called Condridge Holloway from the Ottawa Rough Riders in a trade 
and you just couldn't help but love Condrej. He was such a competitor and, and a little guy and a, and a, but an, an unbelievable arm and, and, and brave and, and, you know, just willing to put his head down and get, get hammered. Uh, and they sat, they suffered through the worst year in team history. There were two wins and 14 losses in 81. And the first three games that year, they lost by a to- combined total of five points, you know, one point, one point and three points. And they could have, they could and should have won all three of those games. And I think it was the third game of that three uh, home game. And uh, uh, they're down, they're marching for the winning touchdown to get off the schneid and, uh, and Converse throws a ball and it sailed a little bit and it got picked off in the goal at the goal line. And he was so mad. He took his helmet off and he went onto the ground and it busted into pieces on the hard artificial turf at exhibition stadium. And, and, you know, and then later he, he apologized, like I shouldn't have, should, kids shouldn't see a guy do that, you know, like he, you just couldn't help but love the guy. And then of course the next year, so then they, they fire, unfortunately fire Willie Wood. I loved Willie as a coach, but he was, they were 0 10. They got, he got fired by, by the 10th game of that season. And mm-hmm. the next year uh, they brought in Bob Bilovich and Bob Bilovich hired Mouse Davis as the, as the offensive coordinator. And Mouse mm-hmm. came up from, from U.S. college ball and brought this thing called the run and shoot. And it took advantage of a lot of stuff that happens in Canadian football, like unlimited motion in the backfield. And, and uh, he, he designed a, uh, it was basically, a, it, was a, it was a system that was designed kind of to get your quarterbacks killed because the, 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 a lot of the times the, the offensive linemen were peeling up to go and block for receivers downfield. And so like Condridge Holloway would have to take like a, either a, a five-step or a seven-step drop and get rid of that ball because he is going to get and man when it like it took it took about i think it was the fifth game of the 82 season before that offense actually worked and when it did holy crap it we'd never seen anything like especially argo fans because we'd suffered for years right i mean they they didn't win between 52 and and 83 i was i was a fan since about 68 so i said from 68 to 81 i only knew failure and mostly misery although there were some there were some entertaining argo teams right at the the turn of the 60s and into the early 70s but but they didn't win uh didn't win at all they got to the great cup once uh but from 71 until 81 it was mostly just garbage and they would they would find creative ways to lose right there'd be like there was one year that they go into the last game of the season you can get in the playoffs if you just lose the game by 15 points and they lose by 16, right? Like that kind of stuff would happen. And it was always to Hamilton, the rivals down the road. Right. And so uh, when suddenly now, now we get the game week, I think it was week five or week, yeah, week five, I think of, of the, of the 82 season home game against Edmonton Eskimos and Edmonton at that point was about to win their fifth great cup in a row. They were the dynasty of all time. And Warren Moon was the quarterback, and man, they were just. And every year they would come to Toronto and just decimate the Argos. And that night, we kicked them. We kicked the crap out of them, and it was Conrad Holloway to Terry Greer, unbelievable long bomb touchdowns, and the exhibition stadium went bananas. The place was so crazy, thousands of fans stormed the field after the game. Like it was the the, the two, two players of the game, Holloway and Rick, Rick Moore on the defense defensive star of the game were being interviewed by TV and they like Rick Moore had to basically pound guys out of the way to get Condors <laughs> to the locker room afterwards because there were fans on there trying to like give me a give me your give me your glove give me you know you know and Condors had an unbelievable year in 82 he was he that offense was just made for him and so he was the most outstanding 
outstanding player of the league that year. And then most left, most left after one year, there was basically a power struggle. He, I think he wanted more power than old Bilovich was willing to give him. Maybe he wanted to be a head coach. I don't know, but he went down to the USFL mm -hmm. and everybody thought, well, there goes the run of shoot, but the guys knew. And in fact, they funny, they, there's a funny story in my book about uh, 83 the bouncing back book. Um, they brought in an assistant coach, obviously a new offensive coordinator came in to replace mouse and he didn't understand the run and shoot. And the players led by Condridge just said, like, fuck this. We're going to, we're doing the run. We're running the run and shoot anyway, boys. And, and they did. And they, and they, and they, they won the great cup with it. And, and the guys wanted to buy most Davis a great cup ring. They did do it, but, but he, he's mad. He wishes he got one. Right. But, uh, but the, that run and shoot office. And of course now you like, even, even that season, even during the 82 season, teams were copying it. And it's funny. There, there was this one bread and butter play of the run and shoot which they called the hitch screen pass. It would basically Callaway would take the snap and would instantly throw pass out to the one side, to, usually to Terry Greer, the best receiver in the league at the time. And he would catch it basically like maybe one yard over the line of scrimmage. And then he would start peeling up field and you'd have these two offensive guards up running with them. Right. Then mowing down receiver, mowing down defenders as he's, as he's running. And uh, in the, in the gray cup in 82, the year of the run, the year the run and shoot came up. They, they, Argos did a crazy thing. They put in a receiver for the first time in the Grey Cup game. A guy named Emmanuel Tolbert. He, they, they plucked him off Saskatchewan's practice roster, and he was better in their view than than the guy they had starting all year. So they put him in the lineup for the Eastern Final, or sorry, for the Grey Cup, and they threw him on the other side a hitch screen pass, and he went for like an 84-yard touchdown. And later in that same game, Edmonton threw the hitch screen pass to Waddell Smith, and he ran for a touchdown. Like teams were stealing the offense from most as it was going on. And you know, you watch even now. I see hitch screen passes all the time. It's like that became one of the predominant pass plays in Canadian football. A short pass to the sideline to a guy who's only one or two steps over the line, and you got blockers in front. Uh, it's it's the bread and butter play, and most brought it to the league. He brought a lot of innovative plays to the league. Um, the motion you would have, you'd have, you don't see as much motion now. What you see with this thing that's called the, the waggle, right? Where mm -hmm. the, the, the inside receivers don't have to be lined up on the end, can move in motion towards the line of scrimmage um, before the snap. But what, what, what most had them, he had the guys crisscrossing in the backfield. So you'd have like a slot back and a, and a full back and a slot back and a full back, all crisscrossing before the ball snapped. So, so you could obviously come, Padres could see, well, are they in man coverage or are they in zone? If anybody's moving, then they're in man. And, and depending on how there's lined up in a zone, I know this guy's going to have a mismatch. You know, that's what it was. And Moses, Moses offense was predicated and every team does this now. Every team in, in sport and football does this. It was predicated on read the read and react. So mm -hmm. it was up to Connors Holloway and Terry Greer and the other receivers to, to see how the guys were lined up in the coverage and run their patterns accordingly. Greer would see where a guy was lined up and he would know that means I'm going to run an out or an in or a slant or a go. And he and Condridge had to get on the same wavelength on that. And it took four games. The first four games, they were struggling. But when they got it in that game five, it was like one of the guys in my book described it was like, it was like you could see the, like a, a, a telepath, tel telepathic ray between Holloway and Greer. They both knew exactly what, they was gonna, what, they were, what he was going to do. And Holloway threw the ball knowing Terry's going to be there. And, and Greer ran there because he saw how the defensive backs was covering, were lined up and covered. That's where Condor's going to throw the ball. And everybody does that now, right? Those kind of timing and read patterns are just constant. In the NFL, college football, Canadian football, everybody's doing it. It's all because of Mouse Davis, in my opinion.
Yeah, I mean, he had to be like a kid in a candy store when he got there with, you know, with all the rule innovations in Canada that just, you know, made everything, made his style absolutely perfect. Oh, yeah, the, the motion and the extra guy, like he's got an extra weapon, right? He's got he's got six receivers instead of five. Uh, so, yeah, you add all that up, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's sort of, I remember when uh, when they had the American experiment, they were they were billing it as longer, wider, faster, and uh, <laughs> it definitely when you had Condridge and, you know, working out of a Mouse Davis offense. Yeah, if, you, if, you, if Canadian football done properly is incredibly entertaining and, and arguably more entertaining than any other brand of football. And unfortunately, and this, I think, is one of the things that hasn't helped the Argos, although it's, 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 it's not only affecting them, but I don't think that I think that I think they've, the rules and, and the way teams have have coached in the last 15 to 20 years have have changed have lost some of the entertainment value. Um, you know, they, they, they we, it's not as fast a game. I, I watch old games. I got a lot of games on, on, uh, well, originally on, on tape and now they're all digitized. And if you watch them, you know, you can, the, the, you watch a play, the, the play comes to a halt, the whistle blows and they use a skip, a 30 second skip feature that a lot of v, VCRs and DVD recorders have. You just jump 30 seconds ahead the next play is already underway. Nowadays, it doesn't happen. Nowadays, you know, everybody's making all these substitutions. The rosters got bigger. So now three new defensive linemen are coming on the field and two new receivers are coming on the field and the referees watching all this. And then finally starts the 22nd clock. And so by the time the ball is snapped 30 or 35 or 40 seconds have elapsed, whereas there used to be two plays done in the time is now taken one. So we've lost some of that. And, uh, you know, and I think the teams have loaded up on defense. They've loaded up trying to, well, all these coaches, they now got 12 coaches on every staff and most of them are trying to stop you from scoring. They're not trying to score. They're not, they're not bringing in Mouse Davis's. They're bringing in Buddy Ryan's guys that are just designed to, to kill offense. And so it, Canadian football. And, and in the meanwhile, the U.S. has been stealing all of our innovations, right? The, the U.S. NFL stole stuff. Some of these things like most the hitch screen pass and things like that. Uh, they, uh, they don't, they just, they, they now run five receiver sets. You know, it used to be that you never see five receiver sets in the NFL. You'd see two, a fullback and a running back and, right. and, and a tight end and, and a, two wideouts. Now you see five guys and sometimes they're even five fast, young, small guys. Um, we don't, you know, we were doing that 30 years ago, right? So it's, it's uh, the, the, and, and they, they steal in all our best quarterbacks. You know, Connor Holloway, if he, if he had been born, 30 years later, he would have been playing in the NFL. Like he, he was that right. good. The NFL didn't want black guys. They didn't want five foot 10 guys playing quarterback back then. But now they're quite happy to have guys like Russell Wilson and players of that caliber who 30 years ago would have all been coming to Canada. So we're, I'm, I'm glad for, for society that, that the NFL is not as racist as it used to be, right. but it's hurting football yeah. to, be, to be blunt, right? Well, I know Greg and I've talked about we love, uh, you know, from the standpoint of rules, we like the CFL much better than, you know, American college or, or NFL. But yeah, for me, there's nothing more frustrating than to see a CFL game that ends up, you know, 14 to 12 or something. I mean, yeah. you, you want points. I want, If I'm watching a CFL game, I want to see points. Well, you yeah. You know, Scott, the, uh, I, wrote, I wrote writing about 90 and 91 primarily in this, in this new book I've got coming out. And 90, in my view, was the, was the apex of, of Canadian football entertainment. I mean, the Argos scored more points than any team had ever scored that year. And there were games, there were tons of games that were like 51 to 42 and 
39-36. You know, there was just tons and tons of scoring. And some people say, yeah, well, that I like defensive football too. I like defensive football too, but but I want to see, I want to see big plays and excitement. And there was a ton of excitement back then. And I think some of that has been bled out of the game. And I if they do end up going ahead with this with a merger, and who knows if it'll happen. I, I know most Canadian football fans don't seem to want it. I do. Um, I think what they got to do is they got to make sure that the rules are incredibly entertaining and incredibly exciting. They got to make it so that it's, it's really, really entertaining to attract casual fans and young kids and things like that. Um, and they, you could take a lot of Canadian rules and do that. I mean, certainly you take, you take, uh, uh, even if it's 11 man football and four downs, unlimited motion in the backfield is that to me like a no brainer. You got to do that. Um, you know, some of the kicking game rules, I, you know, the, the single point, the rouge, uh, some people say it's, it's, it's a reward for failure, but it, and, but, and there are, I'd like to tweak the rule a little bit to make it so it's not a reward for failure, but I like the fact that if, if a team misses a field goal, it might come out of the end zone. They might run it back. You know, right. they don't, you don't get that. And, and like runbacks are exciting plays. Uh, so to me, you know, you want to encourage, you want to encourage teams to, to actually field the ball and run it back. Um, so some you you bring in some of those rules and maybe you bring in some new rules. I'd like like hey, I'd, they've got a, we've got a theoretical twenty second clock, but as I said, it in reality it's more like a thirty five second clock. I'd make it a I'd make it a twenty or a, maybe a twenty five second clock, but make it like the NFL is forty. As soon as the whistle blows, the clock starts. So okay, plays dead. You now got twenty five seconds to do all your substitutions and get the ball snapped again. Forced teams to get the ball and play quicker it'll mean you'll get fewer substitutions you'll get more guys that are tired which leads to mistakes which leads to big plays so they do stuff like that and you can take you can make i do believe canadian football is inherently more entertaining but they but they've got to they've got to take advantage of some of the things that they've sort of stopped taking advantage of so in talking about cfl being i'm sorry scott in terms of iowa and scott and i have had this conversation in terms of what we've what of the brand of brands of football we find most entertaining. And for us, it's always been the CFL brand. And in talking about the 91 team, let's talk about entertainment in general, John Candy. Tell me about him. I mean, I know in, in the title of your new book, he is part of the title of your new book. And uh, in terms of owners, I mean, how much, how much more entertaining can John, I mean, can you have somebody with like John Candy? Yeah, it was, it's, it's, he's in a huge part of the story. He's, he's, he's really, in some ways, he's like the hero of the book because, you know, the Argos have been around for almost 150 years and they've had a lot of owners over that time. There's only, they've only had one owner of all that time who just genuinely loved the Argonauts. And that was John Candy. He grew up in Toronto. He wanted to play for the Argos as a kid. He always says if he didn't have his knee injuries in high school, he would have played for the Argos. Who knows if that's true, but he, 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 he thought it was, you know, and, um, and he loved the team. He went, he went on the road with that team every game that year. And when John Candy came to town, the whole town went crazy, right? He was the biggest star that Canada has ever produced, arguably, certainly in Hollywood terms, in terms of, you know, acting, he's the biggest star forever. And then you get, and then you add Wayne Gretzky, the, you know, the greatest hockey player of all time. And you add Bruce McNall, who, you know, turned out to be a real fraud artist, but he was also the owner of the Los Angeles Kings and a, and a guy who seemed to be like a tycoon with a Midas touch. Uh, you know, it was, it was an incredibly entertaining season and, and John Candy was, 
was was massively important to it. Um, when, the, when the Argos went on the road, they drew big crowds. And yes, it was to see the Rocket and it was to see Matt Dunnigan and Pinball Clements, but it was also to see John Candy. And, he, and the day before the game, he's on every single radio station in town at, at five in the morning to, till, till nine in the morning. Come on out to the game tomorrow. Buy tickets. Come on, we're going to get the blackout lifted. Come on, buy tickets. Uh, he signed autograph. He, he bought some. I think there was a line. I don't know if the line ended up in my book, but there was lines like he bought everybody in Canada a drink that year, right? Like he was just he's like John was John was everywhere, and uh, you know he he just dominated his presence dominated, and he and he not only was he just there to like to 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 be a you know to have fun and be an owner. He was he was the guy pushing American expansion. He was he was pushing hard for. He was the chairman of the league's expansion committee. He brought in owners to the Ottawa Roughriders when they were bankrupt from the U.S. He he did a whole lot to to help save the CFL. People look at the expansion years as a, as a failure. Uh, they only played had teams in the states for three years, and in the end, they all left. Uh, one in Birmingham, of course, uh, Scott, and uh, uh, they you know was it a failure? Yeah, maybe it was a failure in the sense that it didn't take root and last. But it it bought the CFL time. It bought them some money, and it bought them some time what they needed desperately. And so you can argue that John Candy and Bruce McNall, less Wayne, because Wayne wasn't really involved in the operation so much. Mm-hmm. But those two guys, by pushing for U.S. expansion, they did end up having the league survive even after they were gone. Uh, but John's a huge part of the story. The, you know, the book's called Year of the Rocket. John Candy, Wayne Gretzky, a crooked tycoon and the craziest year in football history. And I think it's an accurate title. It really was the craziest year in football history in many ways. I mean, some of the stuff that happened that year with the Argos and the Grey Cup and and the Rocket. I mean, they paid him more money than any player would ever been paid in football. He was making more money than Joe Montana and Jerry Rice combined. He was it was nuts how much money they were paying him. Um, it just it, it all adds up to an amazing story, and I was I spent four years researching it, and I hope I've done justice to it. The book will be out in a couple of months, hopefully, and uh, people will decide for themselves. I can't wait to read it. I mean, that's just uh, especially it's so cool to hear that Candy was a real hands-on owner. You know, it wasn't oh, yeah. just you know just something that he did kind of. On- Lark. I mean, that it meant something to him. Oh yeah, when he, of course, and you know, talk about marketing. I mean, John was full of marketing ideas. He, he also came. He, he came from Hollywood. He didn't think there should be a budget for this stuff, right? I mean, he <laughs> he insisted that Chris Columbus direct a commercial. And Chris Columbus was, you know, he was the director of Home Alone, and he later directed uh, the Harry Potter films. And mm-hmm. you know, he's a big, big name U.S. director. And John wanted to do a thirty-second Argo spot, so we. Brian Cooper, the the the, the team's uh, chief operating officer, had to like kind of tamp him down a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but he was he was he did he did commercials. He shot commercial at the at the Colosseum in Rome, talking about buying Argo tickets. And uh, uh, he you know the people tell him the book and he 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 came in with like a million marketing ideas from day one. And he wanted to bring the Blues Brothers in for for opening night, and he did. He got Dan Aykroyd to come up. You know John Belushi, of course, was dead, but Jim Belushi came up and you know, with Dan Aykroyd, and they flew in the real Blues Brothers. Band Steve Cropper and Duck Dunn, all those all those amazing wow. guys from Memphis came up and played half time and post game at the opener in '91. Uh, made it a huge event, um, and that was John. That was all John's doing. And then, of course, the, the end of all that. Had, John Candy had nothing to do with how that all ended. Obviously, Bruce McNall and his eventual federal prison sentence had a lot to do with that him as an owner. So was he, and part, pardon me for not knowing this, but was he cooking the books with the Argos or was he using, or was it more robbing Peter to pay Paul and yeah, 
yeah. robbing robbing Peter to pay Paul is a good way of describing it. I mean, with Bruce, and he's he, he's open about this. Right? He's he's a he wrote a book about it. He, he talks openly about it. He, 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 he laughs about it, basically. But I mean, with Bruce, every deal was to pay for the last deal. Every, there, was, there, there was all this fraud layered upon fraud. They, would, they, they kept, kept snowing investors, banks, and, and, and other people uh, to think that they had all, this, all, this, all these valuable assets that they have. Um, I mean, they did spend the money. They did. Rocket got his money, right? For the two years he was up, he got, he got his full nine million bucks. Uh, but they they didn't make money because of that. Uh, and by year two, they weren't paying their bills very fast. And sometimes they weren't paying their bills at all. Uh, there's a story in my book about how in 1993, uh, when the LA Kings, which was Bruce's hockey team, when they were on the way to the Stanley Cup final that year, uh, the equipment staff for the LA Kings phoned up to the equipment manager of the Argonauts, Danny Webb, and said, are you noticing anything? Because we just had a stick order re rejected. And so, like, you know, there was the dominoes were starting to fall and the walls were starting to collapse on, on McNall Sports Entertainment. Um, and so he had the team up for sale for about almost a year. He's starting in 93. Sad story, and it's in the book, is that he, he didn't, uh, he insisted that Brian Cooper, who was the team's, the de facto president of the team, that he find a buyer, but don't tell Joe selling the team and i i think it was because mcnall didn't want candy to know that like i'm i'm a house of cards i don't really have all the money you thought i had um in, in retrospect you know, what if candy had known would he have would he have had time to maybe put together a group to buy the team and let him continue with his love of the argos maybe although that might not have been the best in fact it wouldn't have thing for John and his family because he would have run out of money eventually. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it came to a sad end. And of course, he just found out that they'd sold the team. He, he finally found out, he found out it was going to, it was on, it was for sale. He toyed with the idea of bringing in, like putting together his own group and, and then came to the re realization fairly quickly that he couldn't pull it together or maybe that he shouldn't pull it together for the sake of his own financial fortunes. And then he dropped dead in Mexico. Like it just all happened together. Uh, and then two years later, McNall's in jail for six years, uh, and we've all moved on and sort of forgotten. But it was the most crazy year in, in the history of the Argonauts, and and the way it came to an end the following year is pretty interesting too. A pretty part of the book is about '92 and the way it all fell apart. And Rockets, you know, didn't want to be here, and he, in a game he, against the Calgary Stampeders, he stomped on a guy's head. There's all kinds of stories like that, right? So, wow, wow, and, and when you were working on the book were you able to interview john candy's family and rocket yep yeah not rocket i tried i tried for for 14 months to get rocket to talk to me uh never got an answer never got an answer for i tried i tried everything you could try phone calls emails texts i sent a registered letter to his house i went through several people that are good friends of his to ask him got nothing 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 finally i got an intermediary i said to her i said to this person i just if he's not going to do it get him to at least tell me. And finally, in the end, he declined. Uh, so he's, he's the one guy that I wasn't able to talk to that I wish I had been able to. Uh, a few people, of course, died along the way. I mean, we, I never got a chance to talk to Daryl K. Smith, one of the greatest receivers in Argo history, a very colorful character, but he died before I started working on the book. Um, but yeah, I talked to, to Jennifer and Christopher Candy. They have really fond memories of the Argos and their time going to games. And even their mother, Rose, John's, John's widow, Rose Candy, every year they'd have up at the family farm north of Toronto, they'd have the Rose Bowl and they'd all wear Argo jerseys and play a game of ball. John, John would be you know, playing, playing uh, uh, rushing the passer, counting steamboats and stuff like that. So. <laughs> 
And yeah, uh, were you able to interview Gretzky? Yeah. Yeah. Talked to Gretzky. He had some very interesting things to say. Uh, told me some things I'd never heard before. Uh, I didn't get, a, I didn't get a super long interview with Wayne, but I got enough, enough time to get some very, very useful information uh, about rocket, about candy, about the, about the organization as a whole. Uh, Gretzky, of course, is one of the few guys that got his name on both the Stanley cup and the gray cup. Um, and that meant a lot to him at the time, but he also, he, he realized sooner than, well, certainly sooner than John did, and maybe even sooner than Bruce did, this isn't going to work financially. He wanted out by year two and he got dragged along for the full three, three plus years, but he was not happy about, about losing money. Although he, he told me he didn't lose any money, but you know, I, it's and maybe he didn't because people did tell me people very close to Bruce told me, well, that was the way with Bruce. He never wanted his partners or his friends. So if you lost money over here, he'd cut you in on a deal over here where you'd make money. So it's possible Wayne got back his investment through through race horses or or other investments that Bruce and he did together. Yeah. And were you able to interview Bruce? Oh yeah, yeah. I had a good a good interview with Bruce. I went and interviewed him in his office down in Santa Monica. I mean, it's a, how the mighty have fallen, right? I mean, there's a great. story in the book about how when Larry Smith became the commissioner of the CFL in 92 and the, the first time he went down to, to, to LA to, to, to meet with McNall, he had like four floors of his office tower. And then six months later, he had like, you know, two floors. And six months after that, he had like three people or something. And uh, when I interviewed Bruce, it was in a nondescript office he was, it looks like he was renting, like a, basically renting a small office in a suite of offices. He didn't even have a real proper desk. Uh, he still, he still got friends and he, you know, he still gets to go to LA Kings games for free and all that stuff, but he doesn't, he's not the player that he used to be, uh, but he knows it. And he, you know, he, 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 he talks about it basically, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't really apologize for all the things he did. He just kind of sheepishly with a grin acknowledges that he did it. Uh, he does say, you know, that owning the Argonauts was one of the most fun things he ever did in his life. And a big part of what made it so much fun was working with John Candy. In, in a way, and if I'm hearing it correctly, man, correct me if I'm wrong or if you think different. But in a way, McNall kind of saved the CFL by bringing in Candy, by bringing in Gretzky, talking expansion. Do you think we would be talking about CFL football at this point without McNall, without Gretzky, without John Candy? You know, you're, you're on to something, Greg. I mean, I, I don't, I, it's very possible it wouldn't be. I mean, the league was in really rough straight back then. You know, it, it's funny, you know, when I talk about 91 as the greatest year, the craziest, most magical, electrifying year in the 150 years of Argonauts football, and it was all of that. And people remember, oh, yeah, the Rocket and Candy and Gretzky, they all remember the Blues Brothers. Everybody has all these happy memories, and, it's, and they're true. They're all real. But at the same time, like, you know, the Argos opened. In the 91 season in Ottawa against the Rough Riders, four weeks later, the four weeks later, the Ottawa Rough Riders declared bankruptcy, right? And 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 Calgary didn't have an owner for much of that season, and Hamilton was on the brink. Teams were struggling, uh, and so you know, the, the, having having McNall and Candy and Gretzky and Rocket and and Pinball and Dunnigan and all those guys, it definitely helped the league then, and then it did. As I said earlier, it led to expansion, which which whether it's a failure or not because it didn't survive. It brought in some money when they needed it. Um, you know, the league, the league's arguably the league's lowest point was in 96, which was at the, the first year after the expansion era was over. Baltimore had folded and moved up to Montreal. Everybody else left. And um, uh, the league was very entertaining that year. The Argos were lucky to get Doug Flutie, and we had a great year and won the, won the Grey Cup. Um, but to get to the Grey Cup in Hamilton that year, and and they were, the league was out of money. They they didn't have enough money to give the the players in the Grey Cup their game checks. They had to go to a 
Bonds or Tim Hortons and get money to, 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 so they could pay the players for playing in the Grey Cup. So if they were that close to, to dying five years after McNall got there, would they've even got there without McNall? I, it's a it's a great question. We'll never know the answer, but I think I think it's very possible the league might have died by '93 had it not been for McNall, Gretzky, and Candy, and, and that whole that whole circus. Wow, wow! That's, this has been a great, great, great hour talking, and this is a great story. I mean, and this is one after I would really I know both Scott and I want to really pick up this conversation, want to pick this conversation up after your book comes out to talk more about the Argos. If you could, can you let everybody know where, where they can find you and how to order your, order your, sure. not only your, your first book, but your second book. And I can, I, I'm speaking from, from, I read your book and your first book about the, about the Argos and it is, it's, it's one of my favorites. So well, thank, I do appreciate, I appreciate you that. for writing it. Cause it, uh, yeah. I always, um, I always love good writing and much like Scott, much like Scott, you're a great writer. And uh, I'm looking, we're both looking really forward to your new book coming out. Well, yeah, I'm ordering this one immediately. As soon as you tell us how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you both for, for, for kind words. I, I really did. I really enjoyed writing that first book. And, it, you know, I, uh, I, I believe that, that it's a part of Canadian history that deserves to be preserved. And, and, you know, the Argos are, are, have been an institution in this country for, for almost 150 years. And that's only a little slice, you know, the 81 to 83 eras of only three years out of that, of that whole time. But it's an important part of the history. I'm, I'm glad I was able to, to reach out to so many people to tell me about their own perspectives. And so I could try to capture it in the book. Uh, and the same, I feel the same way about the 91 era that, you know, the Hollywood era that you could call it, I guess, that it really deserves to be preserved so that a hundred years from now, somebody could go back and read that and go, wow, that happened. Um, so in terms of how to get it now, I, I, I can't, I can't give you ordering information quite yet. It, I do have a publisher. I'm happy to tell you the publisher is named Sutherland House. It's a Toronto based uh, nonfiction company uh, with a, with a great editor, a guy named Kenneth White, uh, who's one of Canada's greatest editors. Uh, and uh, the plan is for the book to be out and, and for sale on both sides of the border uh, by around the time the league starts the season this year. So it could be out as early as early August, or it might be you know more more like uh, around Labor Day, around early September. There, if if the if the season goes ahead, there's a possibility that the Argos will be honoring the '91 team with an of some sort because uh, it's their 30th anniversary right. so obviously the, the the publisher kenneth really wants to sort of pop, you know peg the sales of the book to that if possible uh so it'll be out you just sort of stay tuned as far as that goes uh, it will be available everywhere it'll be available on amazon you'll be able, able to order it directly from from you'll be able to bookstores in Canada how many how much penetration will get into the U.S. market in the stores I don't know I would guess it might be in pockets maybe in the LA area because of Candy and Gretzky and and, and McNall maybe in the maybe around Chicago because of Rocket being from Notre Dame who knows uh that's not my problem they'll they'll figure out distribution uh to get in touch with me though I mean, the, the, maybe the fastest way is to, through Twitter. I'm at, at PXW13. Uh, my, my Gmail address is paulwoods13 at gmail.com. I can, I can sell people directly copies of the first book, Bouncing Back. I self-published that. And I've got copies on, on hand here. You can also order it online. Uh, speak sort of selfishly, if you decide to order it online, I prefer you, you order it through Lulu 
lulu.com, which is which is the, the 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 people that actually published like printed the book for me, because I get a bigger take of the of the sale price if you if you buy it through them than I do through Amazon. Amazon takes a big cut, uh, but either way, I wanted to find an audience, and if anybody wants the book can find it however they find it i'd love people to pick it up and read it um i enjoyed writing it i uh, i had what, what inspired me was i i'd left my job at canadian press after 30 plus years and i was still a pretty young guy in my 50s i thought you know i, I want to do something else i got i got life left to me and one day i was out riding my bike and i thought you know I've always loved the 83 Argos and I've always wanted to read a book about them. And I don't think anybody's ever going to write one. So I'm going to, and luckily having journalism skills, I was able to I sort of know, know how to interview and know how to track people down. And so I did it. And uh, it was incredibly well received by, by readers, by fans, by members of the team back then. Uh, and I hope my 91 book is even better. I, I, I'm really proud of it. I think it's a great story. It took a lot more work than the 81 to 83 one took. Some of that was self-imposed. I interviewed more people, but I also think the story is way bigger and richer and more complex. So yeah, it'll be out uh, probably, it's what, it's a June uh, 5th. It'll be out, hopefully out in two months or certainly it'll be out by three now. And uh, I'll be putting, putting the word out on social media and I'll make sure you guys are, are tagged and you can you can tout it. And if you want me to come back on after you've read it and talk about it, glad to do that. Oh, we are definitely going to have you back on <laughs> after it comes out. So Fantastic. Well, Paul, thank you very much for coming on and speaking for Scott and I and, and and everybody down here in the States. Hopefully, hopefully we have quite a few people listening to this podcast and we're in our third episode and we really want to thank you for coming on. It's It's been, this has been a great hour and, and I know you have places to be. We could easily go on for another hour hearing stories sure about the Argos. So, yeah. but yeah, we will definitely have you back on. So with that said, this is, um, Greg James with Scott Adamson, and thank you for coming and listening to us on from the 55-yard line. And as always, football unites. Thank you very much, Paul. See you soon. Thank you so much, guys. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Paul. Thank you.
This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hi, I'm Oz Davis of the True the Goats podcast here at the Sports History Network. I'd like to take a minute to tell you about quite possibly the greatest website of all time, newspapers.com. If you're listening to this podcast or any of them at the Sports History Network, you're probably into sports history. And you probably also know that for learning about anything prior to, say, 1990 online, the typical search engines like are nearly completely useless. But then there's newspapers.com. Newspapers.com gives you access to over 640 million pages worth of news from North America, Britain, Ireland, and more, dating from 1798 to last week. Do up a search for Super Bowl One, the 36th Berlin Olympics, Wayne Gretzky's first game, whatever. Newspapers.com takes you there with historical flavor that search engines like just don't give you. And now get a free one-week subscription to Newspapers.com by visiting SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash newspapers. With a paid subscription, you'll also be helping to support the production of this podcast and other Sports History Network shows. That's SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash newspapers. Newspapers.com. Way better for searches than you know what I'm talking about.